0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Chabura. Uh, second um, we, well, second from last, so we've essentially got two more weeks left until Membership Mode kicks in. Um, so looking forward to uh, seeing you all on the other side from July. Uh, we're very, very honoured to have uh, Rabbi Dr. Eli Abadi here with us uh, and to have our Rosh Bat Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, here to introduce our very special hacham, who is here to share with us tonight. So I will leave it to our Rashbet Midrash to continue. Thank you all for being here.
1: Thank you. Uh, welcome everyone. Good evening. It is my great honor and pleasure, and I'm very grateful that uh, Rabbi Dr. Eli Abadi has agreed to give a shirur for us. Before I speak about him and his, his, uh, his credentials and his biography on a personal note, I want to say that uh, when I think of a Talmir Hacham who embodies classical Sfarad, it's Rabbi Abadi. I never said that to him, but I've always thought that. And the reason is because he genuinely is immersed in this world, in the modern uh, movement of society, and he uh, holds his Chokhmah and his Rabbanut with splendor, without any contradiction between the two. He holds it flawlessly and with the greatest of ease. And he, to me, has always been a, an example of what a Talnid Hakam uh, should be, and should look like, and, and act like in our, in our days. And it's, uh, it's also understandable because uh, Rabbi Abadi comes from a long distinguished rabbinical lineage, going all the way back to the 15th century in Spain and Provence. Um, and uh, so it is a great, great honor for us to have him here. A bit about the Rav. I will say also on a personal note that it is in no small part or no small credit to him that I am in the position in, in, in the United Kingdom that I am. He was quite instrumental in it, and, uh, and so I'm very grateful to him for that. Rabbi Abadi, Rabbi Dr. Abadi, is a physician, and he is the Av Dean of Arabia and senior rabbi of the Jewish Council of United Arab Emirates and the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities. He's the founder also of the Sephardic Academy of Manhattan, served in the, uh, in the uh, Safra uh, synagogue for many, many years. He served as the director of the Jacob E. Safra Institute of Sephardic Studies and was a college professor of Sephardic Judaism, history, philosophy, and comparative traditional law. He, uh, he is a great a teacher, a leader, an innovator, and a pioneer in many ways. And so he's going to be speaking with us tonight about the traditional mode, the traditional way of the Sephardi poskim, how it is that they are posek uh, Halacha and approach halakha. Without further ado, I hand it over to uh, Rabbi Abadi. Baruch haba Thank you so much for being with us tonight.
2: Thank you Rabbi Dweck for your uh, humbling words. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here with you um, this evening for you, <clears throat> this afternoon for me uh, and, um, and be part of, of, your, of your habura. Um, so I'm gonna be speaking about the halachic philosophy of classical Sephardic uh, rabbinic poskim. But before that, I'm going to be giving you a, uh, an extensive and a, a comprehensive uh, uh, introduction to uh, Sephardic Jews. Uh, and please forgive me if uh, all of you or most of you have heard it before uh, from someone else uh, or from myself or uh, all, of you, all of you already know it. Uh, but, but I felt it's important to give this um, extensive and comprehensive uh, introduction. Because uh, I believe uh, that will will set the 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 ambiance, the environment that will set the tone uh, of what uh, Sephardic Jews are, and therefore Sephardic Hachamim, and therefore Sephardic uh, uh, philosophy of, of of Pesach, of Halachic Pesach. So I'm not going to take more of the time. I'll I'll begin uh, with that. So uh, again. From very basic thing, I think, from, I'll begin, from the beginning, so to speak. So, Sepharad is the Hebrew word for Spain. As a place, Sepharad is first mentioned in the Tanakh by the Navi Badia, who lived around 540 before the Common Era. And the Pasuk, Vegalut, Ha'el, Haze, Libnei Israel, Asherkena'anim, At Sarifat. And this exile of the children of Israel that were with Canaanites, as far as France, and the Jerusalemite exile community that is in Spain, they will inherit the towns of the Negev. Now Rabbi Yonatan ben Uzzi'il, the second century uh, of, of the Common Era in his Targum Yonatan, he explains and he translates Sefarad as Aspamia, or as we know today, Espania or Spain. Rashi, the biblical commentator of the 11th century, basing himself on that, on Targum Yonatan, explains that Sefarad is actually Spain, and Sarifat is France, meaning, that the 10 tribes living amongst the Canaanite were exiled to France and the Jews of Jerusalem, the tribes of Yehuda and Benjamin were exiled to Spain. In this way, Rashi ascribes the origins of the two major ethnographic groups of Judaism, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim. Now, you may say Spain and France did not exist uh, 2,500 years ago. Well, whether we take this verse literally Or prophetically, as in Nebu'ah, there's a clear delineation of two groups of exiles, their origin, their resettlement, and their divergence in terms of culture, ethos, idiosyncrasy, way of life, and view of life. Sephardim, given their origin, followed the Babylonian Talmudic Jewish tradition and custom, given the continuity of settlements all the way from Iraq, Baghdad to Spain while Ashkenazim followed the Palestinian Talmud tradition, which really was a, 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 a continuation from the land of Israel to Rome to Northern Europe. This is true until today, believe it or not. When we see many Pesach halacha, many of the Ashkenazim may, may quote Talmud Yerushalmi under Pesach. But these distinctions have become primarily those of different traditions, customs, language, different religious melodies, liturgy, differences in festival traditions and different Hebrew pronunciations. Now in the strictest sense of the world, <coughs> excuse me, Sephardim are the Jews who came from the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. But the definition is not that simple. The Jews of Spain were an integral part of the cultural and religious world of Jews who lived largely under Islamic rule, as I said, from Iraq all the way to Spain, even from India, and had developed customs, philosophy, and literature different from other Jews who lived in Christian Europe, namely the Ashkenazim. Today, Sephardim include Jews from communities in North Africa, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Greece, Turkey, Iran, most of whose ancestors may never have been in Spain. Even some Yemenite Jews may describe themselves as Sephardim. Some describe Sephardim as almost any Jew who is not an Ashkenaz. The rationale behind this broad definition of Sephardim is a multifactorial blend of common cultural, philosophical and theological values, language, literature, cuisine, and also modes of dress. Sephardim are believed to foster an optimistic worldview. The music of Sephardic synagogues generally reflects a happy mood. Where does this belief come from? So based on the paragraph in Obadiah, the Sefarim believed themselves to be descendant of Judean royalty, tracing their lineage back to King David. Don Ishaq writes that there was no mistaking in the unique quality of his people as he departed with them from Spain in 1492 during the expulsion. He writes, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from north to the south, there never was such a chosen people as the Jews of Spain in beauty and pleasantness. And afterwards, there will never be another such people. God was with them, the children of Judea and Jerusalem, many and strong, a quiet and trusting people, a people filled with the blessing of God with no end to its treasures." So Spanish Jews were especially proud of their long line of poets. Their philosophers have been influential even among the scholars of the West. Their innovative grammarians had learned and earned a lasting place as pioneers of the Hebrew language and their mathematicians, scientists, and immunerable physicians had won acclaim worldwide. The resourcefulness and public service of Sephardic diplomats also filled the annals of many Muslim kingdoms. Now, given the degree of political freedom and tolerance, Sephardic Jews engaged in an intense and prolonged dialogue with neighboring civilizations. Their familiarity with secular culture did not stem only from living in a society that was welcoming and tolerant, but their zeal to embrace the larger world around them. In fact, this openness to the broad intellectual currents of society in general is one of the most pronounced Sephardic features. Let's speak a little bit about the golden age, the famous golden age, the 10th and 11th century Spain. So the Jews studied Arabic and the Quran and the Moors studied Hebrew and Jewish scriptures. In a quest for old knowledge, the Greek philosophers' original writings were eagerly sought and studied. Learned Jewish scholars translated Greek works into Arabic, Hebrew, and Latin, thus setting the stage for the 15th century European Renaissance. Sephardic scholars developed the theories of trigonometry Jews and the Arabs invented algebra. Map-making was a Jewish science. Several of the travelers with Christopher Columbus, who were the map-makers, they traveled with him to the New World. They were the one who set the map of the New World. Sephardic Jewish philosophers studied Plato and Aristotle and developed the Greek philosophers' theories with which Jewish theology and thinking Prominent amongst them, as you all know, is Harambam, Maimonides. His use of reason and logic to seek deeper understanding and accommodation with the world in which he lived, rather than tradition and blind faith, was not acceptable to the Jewish religious authorities in France and Germany, but ultimately was accepted worldwide, as we all know. Maimonides was instrumental in the use of contemporary reasoning for adhering to Jewish tradition. Hence the term rational Judaism that became the hallmark of Sephardic Judaism. Shalomo ibn Gabirol, Moshe ibn Azra, Yehudah al-Levi. Of course, they all wrote exquisite poetry, very well-known pieces of prayers that we still sing until today in many of our holidays. Moshe ibn Azra also wrote grammar and mathematical treaties. Hasday ibn Shiprut, practically I would say the first Spanish Jewish scholar of the 10th century. He was a famous physician who rose to become, excuse me, the personal physician and chief advisor to the Caliph and later on as Abdurrahman III prime minister. Ibn Shaprut founded rabbinical institutes, built synagogues, recruited scholars to expand the Hebrew language and to develop syntax and vocabulary which is a development that then permitted Hebrew to be used in science and the arts. Famous grammarians like Yehudah Hayyuj, Ibn Janah, Dunash bin Labrat, of course, not all of them were from Spain proper, but considered as Sephardim, and many more. In the Talmudic and religious sphere, Sephardic Jewry contributed personalities like we all very well known, Haramban, Radbaz, Rabbi David ibn Zimra. again, none not in Spain itself, but as a cultural descendant, Rabbi Eliyahu Kapsali, the Reef, Rabbi Zahak El-Fasi, who was one of the three pillars of the codification of the Shulchan Aruch, Don Haq Abarbanel that I mentioned before, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, of course, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, the Ramak, author of several books of Kabbalah, Rabbi Zahak al kalai Rabbi Shlomo El-Kabes, the author of Lechad Odilik Rabkalad that every Friday night we sing, Rabbi Askari or Azekri, author of Yaribon Olam, and many more. In one of my trips to Spain, uh, a legacy trip that I actually did, one of them was ten years ago, I entered into a uh, a library. They called it a uh, Casa Sefarad. I think it was in Toledo, if I remember well, and I saw there an uh, encyclopedia called Los Escritores Rabinos Españoles, the writers or the scholars, rabbis and scholars, by Dr. José Rodríguez de Castro, who was a conversal, and published this uh, encyclopedia in 1781. In that encyclopedia, he included all the rabbis of Spain and. Scholars of Spain, which means a rabbi who had published in the rabbinic uh, sphere and also published in the secular sphere of his expertise, basing himself in 600 years from the 10th century to the 16th century. And I was able, and I was not able to go through every single page, but I took the encyclopedia and I estimated that there were 800 to 1000 of those uh, haramba maimonides was one of them nahmanides was one of them there were almost 1000 of those in a period of six centuries and again mind you we are talking about rabbis that published in the rabbinic area and also published in whatever secular endeavor they they had and so if you calculate 1000 in a period of 600 years, you're talking about more than uh, 1.3, 1.4 uh, of those sages uh, a year, in a sense, on the average. Now, there is no other Jewish history era in which rabbis were published in the rabbinic sphere and also published in their secular profession or area of expertise um, there is no equal period in Jewish history and so many people say well rabbi you know the United States and also in Europe we had a lot of Jewish scholars uh, uh, Nobel prizes uh, in every area of human endeavor that is correct but how many of them first of all were observant Jews how many of them were rabbi by by ordination? How many of them published in the rabbinate also and in the same area? So if we calculate the entire uh, uh, era of of, uh, modern Europe, not including Sephardic and Spain uh, and the United States, I think we get to less than 10 people, we could count them in our two hands of rabbis that have published in the, in the rabbinic sphere and also published in the secular endeavor or profession that they have. I don't think more than 10, uh, I would say maximum 15, uh, if not less than that. Uh, and we are talking about four or 500 years from the time of the, of the uh, uh, Renaissance until today, almost 500 years. I don't think you have more than 15 people where in a period of 600 years in Spain, you had over a thousand of them. Moving on, in the rabbinic literature, we see that the overwhelming majority of the books central to both Ashkenazi and Sephardic life were the product of Sephardic sages. Let's look a little bit at the modern era. So Sephardic Jews never experienced the radical reforms of Europe because different conditions existed in the Muslim world and consequently, the crisis of Jewish identity caused by modernization, which further alienated the individual Jew from his surrounding culture did not take place. One of the manifestations of the confrontation with modernity among the Jews of Europe was known as the Haskalah, the Enlightenment. Proponent of Enlightenment argued for a modernization of education for Jews to include secular subjects. Now there's nothing wrong with that. However, within the Ashkenazi world, there was considerable controversy between the proponents of Askalah and the traditionalists who opposed it. The Jews of Europe were facing a serious dilemma. How could they adapt and survive in a Christian society, which was giving them more freedom than they ever had before? Jew who entered the non-Jewish world very often came to abandon the religious heritage. The ideology of Haskalah was generally not the same among the Sephardim as amongst Ashkenazim. For the Ashkenazim, enlightenment represented a way to enter mainstream European society and culture in a respectable fashion. An underlying hope was that enlightened Jews would be able to function successfully in a non-Jewish society, or accepted as equals. The Sephardim, however, already felt relatively comfortable in their non-Jewish milieu for 600 years in Spain. They had a tradition of adaptability. They spoke the languages of the land in which they lived. Haskalah issues were not central to their concerns. They did not feel that the Jewish tradition and culture was in a way inferior to the culture of the Muslims among whom they lived, even among the Christians, they didn't feel that way, at least not the Sephardim. maybe the Ashkenazim did, they had no compelling reasons to abandon traditional religious values and patterns as a means to adapting to the non-Jewish society around them, Indeed, they functioned as autonomous communities within the broader Muslim world. Rabbi Israel Moshe Hazan, one of the most influential Sephardic thinker of the 19th century, born in Izmir, argued that the Jewish people should conduct themselves according to their own laws and traditions. They should not abandon their religious and national autonomy by succumbing to the temptations of emancipation and enlightenment. He complained that European Jews tended to polarize either by assimilating readily into the non-Jewish culture or fiercely isolating themselves against its influence. He represented the classic Sephardic model, maintaining traditional religious autonomy, while at the same time, being open to the best teaching of the non-Jewish world. A leading religious and communal figure in American Jewish life during the late 19th century and early 20th century was Dr. Henry Pereira Mendes, born in Birmingham, England, and descendant of Spanish and Portuguese Jews. Aside from his training in rabbinical studies, he received a degree of medical doctor from NYU, that's New York University in 1884. He founded what we know today as the OU, the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. He was also co-founder with his colleague, another Sephardic rabbi, Rabbi Sabato Moraes of Philadelphia. They founded together Jewish Theological Seminary of America, the conservative seminary of today. When they founded it, of course, was not a conservative seminary, but it was taken over. He was also involved in the establishments of young men and young women Hebrew Association. He established the Montefiore Hospital, a famous Jewish hospital in in the Bronx here in in the United States, in New York, and also the Lexington School of the Deaf. Dr. Mendez viewed himself as a spokesman for the Sephardic outlook on Judaism, which was able to blend loyalty to the past with openness to new thinking stressing the point that faithfulness to tradition could go hand in hand with modern culture. Rabbi Dr. Mendez strenuously opposed reform Judaism or reforming Judaism, believing that it was an incorrect diagnosis for the spiritual malaise of the Jewish people. Instead of breaking with tradition, he believed Jews actually needed to come closer to it to find peace and contentment in the age old laws and customs. If each individual did as he chooses without taking the claims of Jewish law and tradition into consideration, then the structure of Jewish life would be seriously weakened, Dr. Mendes believed. He criticized this quote, everyone doing as he pleases religion, unquote, as the source of ignorance, apathy, and disregard of religious restrictions. As we see Sephardic religious and intellectual leaders advocated loyalty to Jewish tradition, reform or reforming Judaism was not acceptable. It was a surrender to the whims of European modernity. It could only lead to a breakdown in Jewish religious life, to assimilation, as we see it clearly happening even in our own days and even more in our own days. Whereas the issue of emancipation and enlightenment led to the formation of religious movements amongst Ashkenazi Jewry, Sephardic Jewry did not fragment itself into orthodox conservative or reform movements. Ashkenazi Jewry was torn apart by feuding among the ideological movements. They have established separate communities, institutions, even cemeteries. Sephardic Jewry was spared this religious strife. Certainly, not all Sephardic Jews adhered to all the details of traditional halakha. Laxity in observance, of course, was growing, and unfortunately, still continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Yet, the general Sephardic attitude was respectful to tradition. The religious intellectuals, as well as the masses, were desirous of maintaining a traditional religious framework for their communities. The Sephardim found a modus vivendi characterized by respect for tradition and tolerance for those whose observance of halakha fell short. Whereas some individuals might not be personally observant, the synagogue and communal institutions and structure were to operate according to tradition and halakha. Let me speak a little bit about Sephardim and Zionism which again uh, touches upon the Sephardic approach or the rabbinic Sephardic approach on Zionism Zionism and the establishment of the state of Israel. So unfortunately, there's a big myth of modern Zionism that it's still widely believed is the alleged absence of Sephardic participation in the Zionist revolution. In fact, Sephardim were always Zionists in the sense that many of them have lived in the land of Israel for centuries, while others continued to migrate there from Spain and other Arab countries over the past 1,000 years. Harambam himself, Rabbi Yehudah levi Rabbi Moshe ben Nahman, Harambam, and all Sephardic mystics and Jewish law codifiers of the 16th century, they came to the land of Israel, they created the famous colony of Sfat or Safed. These are just but a few examples of Sephardic Zionists. The relationship of the Sephardim with the land of Israel, unlike those of other Jews was intimate, long-standing, and concrete. It should be noted that Sephardim made up the majority of the Jewish population of the land of Israel at all times, even during the 2000 years of diaspora. Even today, the institution of Rishon Le Sion, chief rabbi of Israel is the Sephardic tradition uh, in the land of Israel since the year 1571, when the reestablishment of the rabbinic ordination, the semicha, was instituted by the Sephardic sages who emigrated from Spain and the Ottoman Empire to the land of Israel. Whenever you're asked, whenever I hear somebody asking, so who was the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And the first thing that they say is, Rabbi Cook. I said, that's wrong. The first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, of the land of Israel, was in 1571. Rabbi Yaakov the Merav and Rabbi Galante. So the first summonses to the Jewish people to return to Zion, to, Yer- to Sion, were actually issued by the Sephardic leaders, Rabbi Yehuda al kalai from Sarajevo and Rabbi Yehuda Bibas a native of Gibraltar. Both seeing the nationalism that swept through Greece to free itself from the Ottoman Empire, they proposed in approximately 1830s, the creation of Jewish settlements in the Holy Land in preparation for national redemption. Rav al recognized that resettlements of large number of Jews would require the development of a modern economy. He pleaded with Western Jews for assistance proposing such schemes as a Jewish National Fund, JNF of today, and traveled widely for assistance to publicize his ideas. He won numerous supporters, including Theodor Herzl's own grandfather, Simon Loeb Herzl. Through his writings, preaching and activities, he was a precursor of the Zionist movement later organized by Herzl. Rabbi al was especially upset with Ashkenazi rabbis in Europe at that time and in America, who disavowed the historic connection between Jews and the Holy Land and refused to join the Zionist movement. For its day, Sephardic Zionism was revolutionary precisely because it blended Jewish activism with traditional Jewish religious precepts. By contrast, the ideology of the socialist Zionism of Europe Required that Jews find redemption by abandoning their religion. Consequently, it was Al-Khalai's brand of Zionism that tended to fuse with traditional leadership rather than encourage a division of parties and organization. The first colony in Jerusalem outside the walls was established by the Sephardic philanthropist Sir Moses Montefiore, a British Jew, known as Yemin Moshe after his name in 1880. We all see the famous um, structure there in Yerushalayim, in Yamin Moshe, the windmill. Now, in contrast to their European colleagues, Sephardic rabbis tended to be supportive of Zionism from the outset, for the movement was a natural form of expression of Sephardic Judaism. The special blend of practical messianic and historic sentiment was fervent, whether in Yemen, Yugoslavia, Greece, Libya, Bulgaria, Once given the opportunity to join the emergent Jewish state, almost the entire Sephardic world rose up to the occasion of returning to Zion. Once the state was established, almost 1 million Sephardic and Jews from Arab lands immigrated to Israel, thereby fulfilling two millennia of prayers and dreams, leaving behind all of their possessions, wealth, culture, and ethnic identity. We have seen pictures and videos of many of those landing from the plane, bowing to the land and kissing the actual ground that they were standing. That is religious Zionism. That is Zionism based on tradition, on Torah and on Jewish values. Now on a more contemporary note, as Sephardim we see that there are two main challenges facing Israel and threatening its continued existence namely the internal social and religious polarization and the external threat from its Arab neighbors. Both are factors that resulted from European cultural influence on Ashkenazi Jewry, and they can be addressed and resolved using the Sephardic model of tradition and openness. The social divide between religious and non-religious or even anti-religious groups is based on socialist Zionism and the European concept of emancipation and political freedom, which denies the coexistence of a religious identity or tradition. To be a citizen of a modern westernized country is to be a secular citizen bound only by modern political philosophy and laws, which excludes religion, the famous separation of church and state or religion and state, which the French Revolution was based and all the entire Uh, uh, European uh, revolutions and even the American Revolution. Ashkenazi Jewry in Europe and in America was torn apart by feuding among the ideological movement, even until today I would say. Now Sephardic experience however has been that tradition or religious identity need not be sacrificed on the altar of emancipation or national sovereignty. The opposite is true. It is only the religious historical experience that gives legitimacy to the existence of the Jew and to a sovereign Jewish state, without the Torah, without our religion, without our desire to return to the land of our forefathers, the one that's promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, then the state of Israel is meaningless. Tradition and modernity can be made compatible and individual Jews have the choice of being observant or not. However, Jewish national and communal institutions and structure are to operate according to tradition and halakha. Sephardic Jewry did not fragment itself into orthodox conservative or reform movement as I mentioned. Therefore, Israeli Jewry should not be able to fragment itself also where in a Sephardic synagogue, you can find a non-observant, observant, observant, and ultra-observant congregants sitting next to each other and participating in unison in the services, even marrying each other's children, thereby keeping the structure of the community intact and united. In a typical Ashkenazi congregation, you will find more of a monolithic and homogeneous group of congregants intolerant of others. The same can be said of the inhabitant of the state of Israel. Why can't they be figuratively sitting next to each other, notwithstanding their degree of observance or belief, as long as a reverence for tradition and Jewish belief is giving the proper respect at the official and institutional level? Why can't that be done? The Sephardic model of coexistence indeed can be the answer to the Jewish community divisiveness wherever it is, in Israel or in the diaspora. Now, let me move more to to the, main body of of, uh, of the class, the Sephardi rabbinic hashkafa, or philosophy. Now the classical Sephardic rabbis and sages of antiquity were known to represent the Sephardic way of life, tradition, celebration, tolerance, and non-extremism. They lived on the beloved golden middle road or golden path as Harambam Maimonides called it. Sephardic means much more than an ethnic origin or culinary style or a particular set of customs and traditions. I remember a few decades ago, as Sephardic groups or movements in the United States were forming their Sephardic, uh, their extent of their Sephardic uh, 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 keeping with tradition is let's make some bunuelos, let's make some lahmbajeen or t-shirts saying, kiss me, I'm Sephardic that was their extent of their Sephardic tradition. So I repeat, Sephardi is not just an ethnic origin, or culinary style, it's a Jewish way of life. It's a way of life that looks at Judaism without divisions, places the unity of the Jewish people above any particular denomination or ideology, and understands that Jewish tradition, primarily halakha, will only survive and prosper if the rabbis exercise their license and authority based on the Pasuk and Debarim uh, Yodzayin, Pasuk 9. And you shall come to the Kohanim, the Levites and to the judge that he will be on those days and you shall ask and they shall tell you the word of the judgment, which means the rule. So to facilitate Jewish life within the world we live in, this Pasuk is said, and it continues to say, al pi ha'torah asher yorucha mishpat asher lecha lo tasur min asher according to the Torah that they will show you, and to the judgment or to the rules that they will tell you, you shall do. Mm -hmm. Do not veer from the thing that they tell you, right or left. However, until very recently, when Lithuanian ultra-Orthodoxy came to influence certain sectors of the Sephardic rabbinic leadership, the classical stance of Sephardic rabbis was always the one that balanced tradition and contemporary life and reflected a tolerant and sensitive approach to halacha. Sephardic rabbis always understood that it does not take a great talmid hacham to be strict, to be mahmir, to be osir. Any ignorant person knows how to say it is forbidden. On the other hand, a disrespectful attitude, do what makes you feel good, is also against halacha and classical Sephardic tradition. It is much easier to be extreme on both sides, but seeking the middle balance takes great knowledge, understanding, sensitivity, and creativity. These ingredients were once the hallmarks of the classic Sephardic halachic tradition. So what characterizes the rabbinic methods of the Sephardic sages? Between the strict and the liberals, the Sephardic sages established a third path in which their great humility before God and their commitment to serve Hashem and the community led them to adopt original halachic positions to face new situations without fear of resolutions and originality. For example, the goals of Rabbi Ben Sion Hai the actual first Sephardic chief rabbi of the state of Israel, he wrote, one of the characteristics, principle of the Sephardic sages is the way that they determine halakha. This is the basic principle known in rabbinic language as kohad de hetera adif, the, bow, the power of the heter, of the permitted way is preferred. This principle, it praises the greatness of the hacham that deeply delves into an issue and finds a tolerant halachic solution or a permitted halakhic solution. The signing halakha strictly does not reflect the greatness of a hacham. Many times a strict religious decision attests to a unpractical educational theoretical concern or a common fear of making a tolerant halakhic decision for lack of conviction or courage. Both are factors that prevent the hacham from choosing the tolerant or the permitted path over the stricter one. The responsibility of the hacham is for the entire community, for the entire Jewish people, and perhaps for all the future generations. No hacham writes only for his generation. They all know that whatever they write, it will be read in the future. Therefore, it shows a lack of responsibility if the hacham sets an overly strict standard of halacha that would cause a large part of the community to be lost if they cannot meet it. As we see in Masechet Baba Kama, page 79. We don't make a decree on the public unless the majority of the public is able to fulfill it. The ultra-Orthodox Lithuanian Ashkenazi world, with its extreme close-minded, if I may say, and anti-Zionist ideology, of course not all of them, is utterly strange and alien to the classical Sephardic tradition. Unfortunately, this is what much of the Sephardic world has become today, endowed with black hats, even even young children now wear that, and black suits, a way of dressing as strange to the Sephardim as the extremist ideology that comes with it. We have never seen such a phenomenon in our history. Today Sephardic leaders and many of their followers have distanced themselves from the traditions and lifestyles of their parents and grandparents and from the halakhic decisions of the rabbis and sages of their home countries, all because they are following like herds Sephardic leaders who studied at Ashkenazi Yeshivot and were influenced by them. Or they just follow directly their Yosha who is Ashkenazi and he follows the Ashkenazi tradition. Rabbi Haim David Halevi, who passed away in 1998. He was the past Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and a classic Sephardic Talmid hacham, whose lifestyle at home and in his writings defined the essence of the authentic Sephardic way of life. He wrote in his book, The Flexibility of Halakha, he writes, the continuity of Judaism is possible only because permission was given to the sages of Israel in each generation to renew halakha as appropriate to changing times and events. Only by virtue of this was the continued existence of the Torah in Israel possible allowing the Jews to follow the, part, the path of the Torah." Unquote. Let me bring you an example. Again, that example, I uh, spoke about it uh, um, in my trip to, to Spain. Uh, with me was a uh, very famous and well-established Ashkenazi rabbi who was giving a class between the differences of the halachic approach of arba'a Be-Kamfod, the Sisit. Uh, between uh, the Rosh and the Rif, Rabbi S'hak El-Fasi, Rabbeinu Asher. As you know, Rabbeinu Asher was a, a, an Ashkenazi Rabbi who came to Toledo. He was installed by the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet, uh, to be the Chief Rabbi of the Yeshiva there, and the Rif was a famous Rif from, from Fez, and then he came also to Spain. Interestingly enough, apparently the Rosh saw that many of the Sephardim in Spain were wearing arba'abek Fot, right, where the beged, the, 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 it was cloth made out of linen, right, yet the Sisit were made out of wool, and uh, and the Rosh gave a psak that this is uh, prohibited and it cannot be used. And of course he writes, the Rosh himself writes, that uh, his Gezerah was not followed by many of the Talmidim of his yeshiva, nor by many of the Spanish Jews that they followed the reef where the reef allows the linen beged and the seat out of wool. And Ashkenazi rabbi could not explain how could it be that this the reef would be posseq in such a way and that nobody was following Uh, uh, the Roche, because the Roche was demanding a Beged, the the actual uh, garment of the Arba'a to be from wool also. And he couldn't understand why uh, the Sephardim of Spain did not follow that Pesach. I just told him, well, you have to understand that the Roche came from Northern Europe, very, very cold, and the wool was necessary to keep the people warm. But Spain, which in the, win- in the summer can reach degrees to 40 uh, Celsius or 110 um, uh, Fahrenheit, it would be very, very, very hot to wear a wool garment with the wool And so therefore, the reef most likely gave that heter, understanding the milieu in which the Jews were living. That's an example in which the hachamim, the sages of each time, see the circumstances around them and come with a Pesach that is uh, accepted by the majority of the people. Only if if there is a great effort to revive the Sephardic halachic interpretation, train Sephardic rabbinic leadership, and present the Sephardic way as an equally valid expression of Judaism, then Sephardic Judaism can survive. A major effort must be launched to rebuild the Sephardic Halakhic tradition and make it a living tradition with poskim by addressing the great religious issues of our time in the Sephardic way and the restoration of Sephardic modes of teaching and learning. The Jewish world today expresses itself in extremes, unfortunately, to the right and to the left. We have lost the beautiful medium expressed by our Sephardic hachamim and by our parents and grandparents. We need to move away from ideological and halachic extremism and instead try to recapture Harambam's legacy of the Shevil HaZahav, the golden path, that once characterized our classical Jewish lifestyle. This can be especially illustrative for the younger generations who seem confused and caught between the polar extremes. According to the Sephardic, classical Sephardic viewpoint, the ideal Jew is widely educated, both in rabbinic literature and in general high culture. On the contrary, according to the accepted perspective, in the contemporary ultra-orthodox world, general education, and especially the humanities, is harmful and detrimental to an authentic religious faith. Therefore, it's not praised by rather, but rather an insult to say of a scholar or rabbi that he was familiar or even interested in science or culture in general wisdom in that section of the Jewish people. Well, we know the famous Perke Abot, Perak Bet, Mishnah Bet, where Rabban Gamliel ben Oshel rabbi Yehuda Hanassi Yafet Talmud Torah in Derech Eres, sheyegad shenahem meshakahat avon. So Rabban Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Yehuda, the prince, the editor of the Mishnah, he says, it's beautiful to study Torah with derech eris. Derech eris here is understood with a profession, with a general culture. Because the because being diligent in both areas, Torah and the general. Uh, culture, it makes us forget our sin, which means it, it will prevent us from transgressing by delving into Torah studies and into general secular studies. By delving into both of them, it will prevent us from uh, transgressing or sinning. And all the Torah that does not include with it a form of living, a profession, or a livelihood, Sofa betela, at the end this Torah is going to become null and void and ultimately is going to lead us to do avonot, to do transgressions. Rabbi Obadiah Bartanura, famous Italian uh, commentator of the Mishnah, he writes and he tries to explain the torashen what does that mean? That every, the study of Torah that does not include a livelihood with it, does not include a profession by that person, and if you say, how can a person commit transgression if he is the whole day studying Torah and delving in the Torah? How how will that uh, make him sin? Why do I need a melacha? I have the Torah alone. I don't need a melacha. I don't need work. I don't need. Uh, I don't need uh, a profession. I don't need a lot to make livelihood because the Torah itself is going to prevent me from doing. I don't need the melacha to prevent me. That's why Rabban Gamliel was in a sense felt necessary to specifically say that, that any Torah study that does not include with it a livelihood, a profession, a way to make a living, that that is going to lead you to sinning. How is that going to lead you to sinning? Because a person cannot live without a livelihood. How is he going to support himself, to support his wife, to support his children, and to support his family? And therefore, if a person is studying the whole day and is not involved in making a living, right, and therefore he does not have sustenance, he does not have food on the table. At the end, He is going to start stealing from people, right? And that is going to make him forget his studies. And of course, nobody would say, no religious person will come and steal money from you outright. No, melastem not necessarily means that you go and outright go ahead and steal, but you commit fraud with them. You tell them you're collecting money for a diseased family member, which in reality is not. You just want to pull their heartstrings and emotions and therefore people give you money. So you're lying, right? So these people say, well, I'm lying for a good reason. So I could study Torah. There's no such thing. Absolutely not. No, not, not to the Torah and not to the Havera. If you're going to fulfill a Mizvah through committing a Havera, a transgression, don't fulfill the Mizvah and don't do the transgression. That's what Melastem means. Melastem, not just actually going and stealing. Nobody is going to go actively and steal. But you commit Freud, a person lies, a person misrepresents in any way to be able to get money for his sustenance. So in principle, Sephardic Jewish scholars did not view modern education as wrong. The fact that they were the successors of the Sephardic Jewish vision towards the general culture led them to be open to the encounter with Western culture, not to close down. Rav Oziel, the one I mentioned before, believed that the exclusively Sephardic approach that developed in the golden age of Andalusia, where the yeshivot seamlessly united Talmudic scholarship, the practice of halachic decision-making, philosophical research, poetic creativity, interpretation of the Torah and mystical speculation, all under one roof. It was an exemplary model and unifying force for the Jewish people. Far from being mutually exclusive, Rav Uziel believed that Jewish unity and the Sephardic intellectual tradition were complementary. He specifically wanted to open a Beit Midrash Sephardi because he believed that his broad worldview would benefit the entire Jewish people and serve as a foundation for peace and unity amongst us, as he writes it. Now the Yeshivot in the Middle Middle Ages were divided into two learning centers known by the general names of Sepharad, Spain, and Ashkenaz, Germany, or Europe, Eastern Europe. This division not only reflects a geographic division, but primarily reflects a difference in curriculum, methodology, and philosophy, the Sephardic Geonim participated in Talmudic study and composed many works of Talmudic interpretation. But the primary purpose of this work was to clearly explain the Talmudic section in depth, to link this section with other relevant section within the Talmud, with the ultimate goal of arriving at halachic practical decision, what we call bekiut, to be baki, to know bekiut, to be to to know the entire Talmud. This is different from the yeshivot of France and Ashkenaz, which limited their scope from Talmudic study to text analysis and not halakha lemaaseh, pilpul or ayun and not bekihut. Additionally, Sephardic rabbis broadened the spectrum of the yeshiva curriculum to include philosophical inquiry, as well as wide range of general science and knowledge that they studied from general literature. The rabbis of France and Ashkenaz locked themselves in the exclusive world of the Talmud and Midrash and many Midrashim, fearing that the penetration of external knowledge would create theological confusion among their students. For this reason, they feared studying Maimonides' guides for the perplexed and burned his books and turned away from the chokhmah of the outside world, how wrong they were then and how wrong they are today. Midrash echara it says, If a person tells you that the Gentiles have wisdom, believe them. Hashem created the whole world and Shlomo HaMelech in Mishle says, In all of your ways, you shall know him, Hashem, and he, God will make your path straight. And Harambam explains that in everything we do in life, we should know Hashem, that He exists. In the world, in the whole world where we can find God, He is in everything that He created and put His imprint on it. And we must find Hashem in all things of the world. So only an open-minded person can appreciate God's wonderful acts in the world. And that's how, and that was how the Sephardic Hachamim where in the past. They were not afraid of learning external things, philosophy, logic, and science, because they found in every single discipline the presence of Hashem. Just look at the universe, at astronomy, and the laws of physics. You will see God's hand in every single atom. Unfortunately, many chachamim of our time are narrow-minded and reject general knowledge. They are only limited to the four cubes Cubits of halacha only, arba amot shel halacha. This reduces the greatness of God and the Torah. Again, in the Barim, Perek Yod Yod Zayin says, "Ushmartem va'asitem ki hi puchmatchem ubinatchem le'aneh ha'amim." asher she'er et kol ha'pukim ha'eleh ve'amero rak am hacham ve'nabon ha'goy ha'gadol hazeh. And you will keep and do because the Torah is your wisdom and intelligence in the eyes of the Gentile people, as they will hear about all your laws and say that this is just a wise people, a wise nation, the great nation of Israel. However, as Harambam says in his introduction to Perek Helik, he says, when secular non-religious Jews and most of the nations of the world see the rabbis of our time, And he's speaking about his time imagine in our time unfortunately they say and I quote these are primitive people and out of reality of today this brings the desecration of the name of God when these nations of the world see the wisdom of our sages involved in the affairs of the world they will explain there is no other wise and intelligent people than the Jewish people this brings Kiddush Hashem and the fulfillment of this Pasuk that I mentioned above. To conclude, regardless of ethnicity, Sephardic Judaism offers Sephardic Jews, <coughs> excuse me, and Ashkenazim a worldview that simultaneously respects tradition and embraces the world we live in, promotes intellectual and spiritual growth, and promotes a halakhic lifestyle that it is meaningful attractive, and sensitive to his approach. Briefly, three short stories. First story about being a judge at the hospital. As you know, I'm a physician, and I I, uh, I am affiliated with many hospitals. Several years ago, I was approached by a president of a hospital, a non-Jewish hospital, to be the chief judge of a medical tribunal to, try a doctor who was not acting professionally. And mind you, I was actually the youngest doctor in that hospital. And I asked the president of the hospital, me, you have great doctors here of renown. I think they should be the judges and definitely should they should be the, the, the chief judge. The president turned to me and he says, no, Rabbi, he says, I know you are a rabbi and you are a doctor. And I know if you are the chief judge of this medical tribunal, you will act justly without any personal interest. And I know that you will do the right thing in the eyes of God. He says, all the other doctors, they might be very good doctors, doctors of renown. They all have self-interest and they're certainly not rabbis. And he was a goy, a Gentile. That is a story in which brings Kiddush Hashem. And every time I remember that story, I said, if just for that moment, I became a rabbi and a doctor, then I fulfilled my mission of doing Kiddush Hashem. Other stories, you know, presidential commissions in the United States, sometimes the president of the United States creates a commission of moral values, of medical uh, ethics. And for him to choose a medical Dr and a rabbi is a testament that he believes that this doctor being a rabbi and a Jew will be able to render the correct decision the correct ethical and moral decision that is a kiddush Hashem and lastly in that stories in those stories just a month ago when it was the month of Ramadan the 30 days in which uh, Mm -hmm. Muslims fast from break of dawn to nightfall Uh, It is customary in the United Arab Emirates for the crown prince, uh, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, to have what's called a majlis. Majlis in English would be like a salon where people come and discuss issues. And I was chosen to represent the Jewish people together with the chief imam of the United Arab Emirates and together with the representative of the Pope. So we were the three religious representatives to address the nation, wasn't just to address him. It was televised and they reran the program almost every night of the 30 days. I was asked as a rabbi to address the nation of the United Arab Emirates on the occasion of Ramadan and to find commonalities between Judaism and Islam. Those are stories that do bring Kiddush Hashem but that Kiddush Hashem can only be done if rabbis and Jews are well-versed in general studies, general secular studies, professions, and also in the depth of Torah studies. So lastly, and with that I conclude completely, the solution to the Ashkenazi-Safari divide and its rabbinic philosophy might still be at hand. However, the messianic vision of peace, righteousness, and harmony in the world has not been realized as quickly as we had hoped it would be. Part of the messianic vision is the blending of all the diasporas and the spirit of mizug Galuyot. Unfortunately, I've seen it uh, in my eyes that Mizug is more tilting towards the Lithuanian, uh, Eastern European tradition. But for a long time, the different Jewish diasporas, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, Mizrahim, Yemenites, Ethiopian, Ben-Emenashe, and all the other Jewish groups have been separated. Not the fault of their own, but a misfortune of history and geography. The gathering in Israel is reminiscing of the words of the Nabiah Hezkel. Behold, says God, I take the wooden tablets of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the tribes of Israel, his comrades, and I shall place them with it together with the wooden tablets of Judah, and I will make them one wooden tablet, and they shall become one in my hand. Hine Anokhi took B'nai Yisrael Israel, B'nai ben where asher went there and kept them from there, and put them on their hands, and made them for one of them, and the Lord one them, and they not Behold, I take the children of Israel from among the nations to which they went, and I shall gather them from around, and I shall bring them to their soil. I shall make them into a single nation in the land of Israel, and a single king shall be for them, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided. Inshallah, I hope and I pray that this will occur in our time. Amen. Thank
0: you. Hacham, thank you so, so much for that. Um, as as Hacham Dweck said, really representing the classical Sepharadim Mesorah, uh, not only in your words, but in your actions. Uh, many of us at the Chabura, many of the Talmidim, the Talmidot, have been following you for many years, seeing the great work that you've been doing, representing, as you've said, Kiddush Hashem at its finest level. Um, and you've really outlined in one Shi'ur the whole objective of the Chabura and what we're trying to do here with the Bet Midrash to allow a space whereby uh, Safaladim and Ashkenazim around the world are able to come and learn about the intellectual heritage of our Hachamim. Uh, the names you quoted from Hamisrael Moshe Hazan, David Halavi, U-Ziel, these are all from whom we drink their waters. So thank you so much for being here, really really appreciate the time. I know you must be very very busy um, if you have just a few minutes for some questions, if that's okay, if we could just do three questions, that would be fantastic. Um, of, course, of course, my thank pleasure. You so much. Thank I, you, I'm Rob.
2: sorry I may have extended myself too much. No no, 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 we,
0: we were ready for another hour, Rav. You could have just kept to going.
2: Justice to the, to, the, <laughs> to the
0: subject. <laughs> Absolutely, no, thank you. Um, I know, Freddie, you had a question. Would you like to unmute?
1: Yeah, um, in reference to the de leniency, so you mentioned earlier that... Um, the Sifaradi approach is that the the Rov'am the doesn't necessarily need to um, be fully observant. So if that's the case, why did the find the need to make the leniencies if they had the understanding that not everyone was going to follow Halacha? Secondly, it does sort of sound reminiscent of more of a Tfosafot point of view. We do see a Tfosafot uh, making leniencies um, Based on the practices that were there, so we, when did this um, practice of making leniencies that the nation can be able to uphold the law better start in the sefaradi world? Uh, uh,
2: first of all, I, I did not say that uh, uh, that made the, that the Sephardi chachamim made leniencies. Because they knew that the majority of the, of the people will not follow those leniencies. No, completely the opposite. They made those leniencies to allow a majority of the am, the majority of the people and the community to be able to follow halakha accordingly. That uh, tradition really goes back to the Hakmeha Gemara, Hakmeha Mishnah. Uh, because by them saying that if they can keep it, that in itself is as an understandable leniency. And also, Hachamim say adam The same way that a person that, that, that it's obligatory to say something that is accepted. It's also an obligation not to say something that is not accepted. So yes, we do say that this is a Sephardic tradition only in contra- contradistinction to the Ashkenazi tradition. But that, that tradition is really a, a, a Talmudic tradition from the time of the Mishnah, from the time of the Gemara, from the time of, of, of Hillel. Why, why are the words of Hillel, the Piske Hillel, versus uh, bet Shammai were accepted because they were accepted by the majority of people. So that principle is as old as, uh, as, as the Talmudic time and before.
0: Thank you, Rav. Uh, any other questions? I, b- I believe there was uh, one in the chat uh, by Oshoah. The rabbi touched on the subject, but how do we reconcile the so-called Haridization of Sephardim in Israel with Sephardic history and Halakhic tradition? How did, could it have come about?
2: Well, well I That's basically the whole in and
0: of itself, isn't it? Yeah, yes,
2: yeah. it's the shire on itself, but I, I did touch upon uh, a lot about that. Uh, basically, I don't think I c- it's irreconcilable, if I could use that word, you cannot reconcile that. Basically, uh, um, or, or unfortunately, many of the uh, Ashkenazi rabbis in Israel feel or felt that uh, it's more important for them to put their children in Ashkenazi uh, Yeshivot because they have the impression that Ashkenazi Yeshivot are more uh, substantial or substantive, uh, are more famous and therefore they're going to marry the right people. That's all unfortunately Ashkenazi uh, uh, thinking Uh, and uh, living amongst them uh, they have uh, absorbed that Ashkenazi way of thinking. And if they don't think that we have uh, good Sephardi Yeshiva, then build ones, then uh, the the established ones. Uh, The excuse is not one we don't have. Let me put it in Ashkenazi Yeshiva. So build ones, establish ones. Be that uh, leader who is going to make a change and make a difference in in the generation that you live in.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. And final question. Um, uh, This is
3: Good know. evening, Rabbi. Uh, Alan Harris from New York. Yeah, hi, how are you? How are you doing? How are you? Good,
0: so good. I have
3: a, <laughs> we have a uh, first of all, a wonderful talk, masterful, uh, and you know, we've discussed several times Ashkenaz versus uh, Safadi, um, shall we say, tradition, and it seems that the Ashkenazis have tried to Take the lead, so to speak. Yet what I find extraordinary is that even the Lithuanians, and particularly the House uh, Beta Levi from uh, the Rav Soloveitchik, that their sefer of 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 reference is the Rambam, is the Rambam. So there's a disconnect. <laughs> there's there's an intellectual lo- illogical. <laughs> or logical, depending how you are, between the two, and I, I, I'm just absolutely amazed, particularly as an Ashkenaz myself, how, and growing up with Sephardim in France, how we're in this current situation.
2: Well, there's no yeah, there's no question that the, what's known as the brisk method uh, yes. is, if I may, the closest to Sephardic Judaism, if I may <laughs> say that, the entire institution of Yeshiva University, it's a Sephardic model. Although if you tell the Yeshiva uh, uh, or the administration that they, they refuse to, to, uh, to, to believe it and to accept it. I have told them that when I was a student there, I have told them that as the as director of the Jacob Safra Institute of Sephardic Studies, there's no such institution among Ashkenazi uh, uh, history, in Ashkenazi history. That institution did exist among Sephardic history. So yeshiva university is a Sephardic model of, of higher uh, yeshiva and higher uh, secular secular learning. What's happening, even with the Brisk method of today, is uh, that many of their uh, cultural or religious descendants have also veered more toward the Haradization of, uh, of, of Judaism. And they have, I would say very clearly, they have kind of if not a complete disconnect, but slowly, slowly, they're disconnecting of that brisket method of uh, practical Sephardic Sephardic tradition and halacha.
0: Thank you so much, Rav. Uh, Just to add on to that point, it's uh, incredible to see that during the medieval period, uh, a point that I've been stressing quite a few times recently, um, the Ashkenazim represented 7 to 30% of world Jewry. So it's unbelievable to see how the Uh, Ashkenazi approach which for many seems like it was the mainstream forever uh, is very much a recent uh, phenomenon and as you've said Yeshiva University very much representing uh, the Sepharadim model of seeing the world through the lens of Torah. Hakam, I will leave you. I believe you're very very busy. We are so so grateful for all of the time. It's been now 15 minutes over time that we've gone so thank you so so much. We can't wait to have you more. This is just the beginning uh, of, of our Bet Midrash. We've had a year so far and Please, God, we're beginning our membership mode next week. So, this has been a fantastic way to uh, to kickstart the new year. And uh, we're very grateful to have you, not just here tonight, but as a representative of Israel on the global stage. So, on behalf of the Chabara, we thank you and we thank everybody for being here. And uh, we look forward to hosting you again, Rav.
2: My, my pleasure. My pleasure. I, I'm just uh, reading one question that is, was sent directly to me. And I'm, uh, I want to make sure that uh, that uh, question is answered. Please. Is the, the question is, um, I will not mention the name because it was direct to me. So It says, is the beginning of enlightenment also the beginning of the Ashkenazi tradition of separating work from spiritual life? I am a biochemical researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, and I work with many brilliant Ashkenazi Jews. None of them see any crossover between their religious life and their work life. I see this as being contradictory to everything Rambam stood for and everything Sephardic Judaism stands for. Is this a correct observation? Thank you in advance for your time. Uh, yes, absolutely. This is a correct observation. That's exactly what I, what I speak about, and that's exactly what you see. They are, no question, brilliant Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, For the last uh, several centuries, many Ashkenazi Jews have invented so many things in science and medicine and in every area of human endeavor. And that's uh, great. But as I said, how many of them are Jews because they observe Judaism? How many of them know Judaism? How many of them are even rabbis? How many of them have delved into? I would say, as I said, in the last... 4 or 5 centuries less than 15 ashkenazi Jews can uh, can uh, can claim to do that and it is unfortunate because because the beginning of enlightenment it created this schism separation between a religious life or spiritual life and between a making a living or a professional uh, professional life and that unfortunately is uh, something that uh, that has plagued the Ashkenazi uh, community. Now, mind you, Yeshiva University has come or has come to correct that. And that's why I say Yeshiva University is a Sephardic model of, of Jewish life. Because now we do have, we have a, a very famous Rabbi uh, Moses Tendler, Rabbi Dr. Moses Tendler, who is a biologist and a, a, and a rabbi, a great uh, 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 Talmid Hakham, who. Uh, is the son-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we have, uh, we have uh, several of those uh, that, that have a secular. We have uh, uh, Rabbi Dr. Eddie Reichman, who is a physician and a rabbi, although he doesn't practice much the rabbin, he practices more medicine, so on and so forth. We have uh, some uh, Ashkenazi Jews who are now, as I said, I would say maybe 10 to, to 15 of those in our era and in the previous generation that are able to combine those two uh, uh lifestyle being a jew a jew by knowledge by 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 uh, observancy and at the same time a great scholar and that is the Sephardic model that i speak about
0: thank you so much Hassan. what a way to end really appreciate that and uh i hope everybody has a fantastic day night evening wherever you are Looking forward to seeing you next week, all for the last Shi'ur of pre-membership mode. So do get online and sign up. Again, thank you so much. And we look forward to having you again here very soon. Bezrat Hashem. Thank you. Thank you so
2: much, all. Thank you, and good thank luck. That's the Habba and
0: you. your Limodiv. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.